So, if that's true in, in your house, and then that's true in your family, what about this family? What about in our church family? Here's what I think would be true, that if we saw this graphically played out for the church, you would find similar patterns about stable churches and successful disciples. Stable churches and people who grow to know and to love children in the faith who grow up in a church, who grow to know and to love, to resemble and reflect Jesus. Disciples born into functioning church families, nurturing church families, where the rules aren't just rules spoken of or memorized, but where the rules for love and sacrifice and service are lived out. My belief is that those children, that those disciples, that those learners would go on to be the people most on fire and most in love with God. My friends Nick and Dana are here. I see them sitting out there this morning. And uh, Nick and Dana used to go to Menem. They moved a couple years ago. Uh, and they're back this morning, and I keep in touch with Nick, and he, Nick says to me all the time, man, that church, it changed my life. The people there, and what happened in that place, it changed my life. So if you know Nick and Dana, they're here, you should see them after church. Anyway, so today, as a conclusion to our New Year's series, Promise is Promise, I want to ask you to consider making some resolutions. We've already talked about making resolutions to one another and, and, and resolutions towards God. How about, or excuse me, resolutions to ourselves and to God. How about to one another? To not just know the Word of God or study the Word of God, but when it comes to how the family should function, we live out these things. To create a stable family where we can, as Paul said, see, did you see all those kids that went upstairs? Really, not as many as I thought. There's a lot of adults in here today. They all went upstairs because we're going to teach them about the Word of God. But when they come back down and get in your car and you talk about, you know, how the music wasn't that good, and the person next to you is kind of a jerk, and did, could you believe what, what I heard over there? You can teach them about Jesus all you want. All they're catching is what, what they hear mom and dad talking about in the car. So is it possible that we could make some promises one to another so that we could raise our children, so that we could bring in people that are trying to find Christ and raise them up to be, as Paul said, to grow up into Christ, who is the head. Now, in a miraculous bit of non-coincidence, I think it's probably more of a God incidence, this plea for change comes on the end of what has been, for me, perhaps two of the most disturbing days of news I have seen in ages regarding how the world treats one another. Every time I thought one thing seemed outrageous, another thing would happen that the other side in these arguments would do, and that would seem outrageous. And then I would see another thing, and I would go, well, that, nothing could top that, and then I'd see something else. And I was sitting on the couch last night and I was going, man, I, I can't believe I'm going to talk about this because what, what was helping frame the argument for me, and maybe it will for you, is what we've witnessed here over these last days and weeks and, and, and maybe, maybe months now is how the world family treats one another. We've seen in the last 48 hours how the American family treats one another, both sides of the political debate, on all sides of it, actually. It's been brought into our living rooms. It's been put on your Twitter account. It's been on my Facebook feed. And while as Americans, we might say we believe in certain values. Oh, we sing of the American values. We might be able to recite certain of our laws about our behavior, but the way, unfortunately, the way we live with one another gets me concerned about the success of the generation that we're building of children that will come after us. So here's what I think the God-ordained scriptures would say about 
all of these things, especially within this family. I think the scriptures can be summed up in three words. Not in here. Not in here. Church, hear me now. Not in here. Let me show you why I say that. Because the ancient writings that we hold up to be God-ordained, predominantly the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, if you come out from different faith backgrounds, you might know them as St. Paul, they make very clear, really quite clear, what the biggest problems are in church families and what the biggest values and behaviors are that would need, you would need to have to overcome them. And I'm going to warn you, church, they look a lot different than what we've witnessed over the last couple days. I'm sitting on the couch last night, I'm working on this sermon, and I'm watching the world family, how they get along. These threats to our community, to our family, this church family, and the corresponding values and behaviors which are to be lived out are laid out in what the scriptures call, what have become to be called, the one another statements. Have you heard about the one another statements in the Bible? There are, mostly in the New Testament, 100 different statements about how we are to treat one another. And so if I was going to give you three things that we should commit to one another, I figured, well, let's be true to this. I'm not going to pull out one or another. I'm just going to go and say, here's the scripture. The scripture talked a hundred times, 94 in the New Testament, about the things, how we're supposed to treat one another. And to just not pull one, one miscellaneous one out and try to harp on that, what I've done is I've gone through and I've, I've, I've looked at the research on what those hundred of them are and picked the top three. The top three one another's, by far, by far, they account for over 80% of all the one another statements. So if we get these three right, we're covering almost all of it. This is important to you. This is important to your kids. This is important for us as followers of Jesus, and more important, just as important, it's important to everybody who's watching. Because here's the thing. If what's going on in here looks no different than what's going on out there, why would anybody care about what's going on here? Term one another, it, it, it's two words in the English, but it was one word in the Greek when the Bible, in the, the language of the New Testament was written in. So if you were to read the New Testament in Greek, over and over again, you would see one word come up. It is the word alone. Can I get you to say that with me? Alone. It means one another. It is one word, but it means one another. You see it 94 times just in the New Testament. If you were to be reading it, you would go enough with alone, 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 alone. But if you look at the alelones, as I told you already, really most of them can be captured in three promises, one to another. Here is the third promise. I'm going to work my way up in terms of what the scripture says should be the preeminent one things. The, the third thing, the, the, occurring about 15% of the times alelone is used, is to serve one another. Here's how Paul puts it when he tries to explain uh, to the church family in a city he called Philippi, or a city that was called Philippi. Paul says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 5, he goes, listen, in your relationships with one another, alelon, have the same mindset of Christ. This is the what would Jesus do bracelet moment of alelon. That's 
what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do when it comes to one another? Here's the answer. Paul says in your relationships with one another, in the way you interact, the way you treat and live with one another in the church family, have the same mindset of Jesus. Does anybody know what that is? See, this is our problem. (laughs) Here's what Paul said. You want to know how you should treat each other here in the house of God? You You should treat each other just the way Jesus treated us. So he goes on, he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient even to death on the cross, the most humiliating of all deaths. Church, fellow followers of Jesus, Jesus did not take his holiness, his spiritual maturity, his Bible knowledge, his intimacy with the Father. Jesus did not take his power, his authority, his position. Jesus did not take what was rightfully due him. He did not take any of that and use it for his own advantage. None of it. He took all of it and he used it for yours. All of it. All of it. He gave it all away to serve. In your relationships with one another, if Paul was to come into our family, I think he would say, listen, mature people, don't take your spiritual maturity. Bible knowledge people, don't take your Bible knowledge. You that have walked with Christ for a long time, don't, don't take all of your intimacy with God. Don't take, if you, you know, I know you're, you're a pretty big wig at work, but don't take your power. I know you have a lot of stuff. Don't take your job title. I know you have a nice car. Don't take your money. Don't take your success. Don't take your fame. Don't take, you might feel what is your due and use it for your advantage, but be like Jesus. Everything that you have, all that is yours, all that you've been given or achieved, I'm going to say something crazy. Humble yourself and give it to the family. Humble yourself and give it to the family. See, the scripture, it's not that the scripture is just full of these things, these laws that can't be lived out. If you want to understand why the church exploded, remember, Jesus dies. There's nobody left on the scene. There's a couple fishermen left. But something happened in this early church where these words went from just being something that you might read, they were lived out. Acts chapter 2, as it chronicles the first gatherings of the church, here's what it says. They devoted themselves. They weren't like half into it. They devoted themselves to a couple things. The first was the apostles' teaching. That's great. That's what we do. We devote ourselves to coming to hear John. You don't actually even devote yourselves to that. But sometimes you come. You come and you hear the apostles' teaching, right? Do you know what it says they also devoted themselves to? Fellowship. To each other. To the breaking of bread. All believers were together. This is crazy. Listen to this. All believers were together and they had everything in common. They, so this is crazy. They sold their stuff. They sold property and possessions and they gave it to anybody who had need. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Of course he did. Because when the people out there saw what was going on here, who wouldn't say, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of that. There's goodness there. 
Now look, there's tons of these alelon verses all about serving one another. I'm just going to give you two more. There's a church in, in a town called Galatia to which Paul says, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Listen, it's pretty easy to come to Menden Hills. We don't ask much, right? I mean, we don't ask you to give, I mean, I don't, get, the leaders here, we don't ask you to, to give money. We don't ask you to, to, to serve real hard. We don't tell you that unless you do certain things, you can't come back here. We don't do any of that. You're free to come and go as you want. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature, which is, well, you know, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to send my kids upstairs and I'm going to drink the coffee and then I'm going to go home. And I'm going to keep coming until I find a church that does it better, and then I'm going to go over there, because that'll be better. <laughs> I've never once had a new family come in and say to me, hey, could you tell me how I could serve here? Because our natural brokenness, our inclination, is to not just use the things of the world for our own betterment, but to use the things of God for our own betterment, and to become consumers of religious goods. Paul says, instead, use your freedom not to consume religious goods, but to serve one another in love. Maybe the most powerful and famous one of these verses takes place at the Last Supper. It's so powerful, in fact, as I thought about it. I'm not sure why it's not regularly incorporated into a communion service. At that Last Supper, Jesus, who's the host of the evening, he's the honored guest at the table, and he's sitting with what we would understand to be his church family. And he starts to hear some disputes going on. They're arguing about things over at the other end of the table. So Jesus, he, he rises from the table and he begins to act quite remarkable in, in, a, in a subversive fashion of the prevalent culture attitude which seemed to infiltrate even the ranks of his disciples. In the day, in that culture, kind of like our culture, humility, uh, humility was often despised as a sign of weakness. Pride and ego, the antithesis of humility, found a home in the disciples' competitive desires to be Jesus' favorite. Some of you know the story in Luke, as Luke tells the story, the disciples are arguing at the table, who's going to be greater? Now, if you really know the Bible, you know that they got that from their mothers, who when their mothers met Jesus, their mothers were trying to talk to them and, you know, oh, could you please make my son the best? And so Jesus is hearing this all going on. And he gets up from the dinner table, and he girds himself with a towel in a manner similar to the way a servant would gird his loins prior to engaging in, like, a menial task. It was the dress of a menial servant. Jesus dressed himself up like a maid. That look would have been despised by both the Jews and the Greeks. And he bends down and he washes their feet. Why? Why? Because we want to be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be the servant of all. John 13, 14, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Promise this one I would ask you to consider making is to serve here. I mean, will you find a place? Let me ask you a question. If Jesus served here, the first place he probably would serve would be teaching. 
After that, where do you think Jesus would serve? I don't know, because I don't think you'd see him. My guess is he'd be cleaning the toilets or working in the kitchen. Will you find a place to serve here? Will you park a car? I know you're, I know you're important. I know you make a lot of money. I know. Will you make some coffee? Change a diaper? Hold a kid? Clean the kitchen? Can I push it even further? Would you consider making a promise to share your stuff? Because when it looks different in here than it does out there, the people out there, they notice. I don't know who gives what at Menham Hills. It's been a long-term policy of this church that the pastor and the elders don't know who gives. I don't know if you, I, if, if you give a lot of money to, to our church and you think I'm a jerk because I don't thank you, well, I may be a jerk, but it's not because I'm not thanking you. It's because I don't know you give a lot of money to our church. Um, uh, we're trying to, uh, James uh, kind of lays out a principle, Jesus' brother, about not treating people differently based on, on stuff like that. And so to protect me and to protect the leaders, we don't know what you guys give. Uh, just, the, just the people that are the treasurers that you elect have that information. I do know one statistic, though, which is a statistic that is probably no different than our church than any church, but gosh, how I wish it was different, which is that about 20% of you give 80% of the money to this church. And you know what that looks just like? Out there. So would you please this year think about serving? We created a card to get you involved in stuff. If you, if you would like to serve, here's some opportunities just off of the bat where you could help us. We need people on these welcome teams. I, we need people to, walk, to park cars, to greet people coming in, uh, to work at the welcome center. We're going to turn that cafe into something spectacular so you can gather around. There's going to be tables and chairs and couches out there soon where you can have fellowship because you're supposed to be devoted to it. We need people to serve there. We need kids greeters down in the kids area. We're going to need folks to work on our technical teams. Tim's doing almost all of the technical work by himself. Would you join our technical team? You could help us out in any one of these areas. Please check that out and drop that off at the, at the Welcome Center. Out there, the world demands that they get what they deserve. In here, we put down our crowns and we throw our stuff in the hat and we serve one another. Now, tied for second. Actually, it's tied for first. In terms of the number of times the scripture says, alone one another, is this, love one another. About a third of the time the scripture talks about a one another, it says that you should love one another. Now, if you're like me, when you first come to know Jesus, you get a little confused because I grew up outside of the church, but this is what I thought was true. And I know people who grew up inside of the church, and this is what they thought was true. The initial impression of what God wants from us is to follow his rules, to obey his commands. And there's no doubt that God does. We talked about this last week, right? That one of the commitments we can make to God would be to take sin more seriously. But something happens with people who just want commands all the time. When you just want more and more commands, it's because you think that by obeying these commands, you can ascertain a certain amount of righteousness. So the people to whom Jesus was walking with, they had taken 10 commandments, and as many of you know, they had turned them into over 600 of them. Believing if they could just keep all of them, they would attain some kind of righteousness before God. And so to this command-following, command-demanding crew, Jesus comes along and they say to him, what's your command? What do you say? 
And Jesus goes, you want a command? I'll give you a command. John chapter 13. He says, in fact, I'm going to give you a new command. This, this word new here in the Greek, it means I'm going to give you an unusual one. I'm going to give you a command you wouldn't see coming. You want to know what it is? Love one another. That's it. There you have it, church. That's it. Just love one another. Oh, and do it as I've loved you. As I've loved you, so you must say it with me. Love one another. Oh, can you see Peter and James and John? Wow, their moms wanted them to be great. You know, Matthew, he was a tax collector, so I'm really not so sure I'm even on board with that guy over there. And they're probably thinking to themselves, Jesus, you can't really be serious about that. What about Judas? I think he's been doing something with the money bag. What, you know, come on. Jesus, I know you hang around with the sinners a lot and the drunkards, maybe a little too much communion wine, huh? That can't be the new command, can it? Well, just in case you were concerned, two chapters later in John 15, this is what Jesus says. He goes, no, 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 this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're my friends if you do what I command. Last week we talked about how do you love God by keeping his commands. This is what I command you, that you love one another. Love one another. That's it. Love one another. But Jesus, that guy voted for Trump. <laughs> Love one another. Jesus, she's a liberal. Do you know what they believe, Jesus? First off, church, let me assure you that Jesus knows what they believe. Let me assure you, Romans 2, if you want to check into Romans 1 versus Romans 2, he knows what you believe too. And he still has one command for you. You know what it is? Love one another. No qualifiers. As I have loved you, as I have loved you, John, with no qualifiers, as dirty and self-centered and sinful and broken as you are, as I have loved you, love one another. Man, Jesus, this can't be that important. Do you know, you know what I heard he said about me? I was at women's Bible study the other day and there was some gossip going on and I heard my name in it. You want me to love her? Do you know what their kid did to my kid in the lunchroom? I get it, Jesus, but it can't be that important. It can't be tied for first. I mean, Paul to a church in Thessalonica. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving one another because God has already taught you to say it with me, church. Love one another. It's like really important. The word is not put up with one another. It, the word is not we agree. See, this is what, we, what, what happens out there. 
The word is not to agree to disagree. The word is not to go our own separate ways. The word is not to choose to not to associate with different people in the church. The word is not I'm going to go to late service because she goes to early service. That is not the command. It is not to be fond of each other. The command here is to say it with me, church. Love one another. We're to love like Jesus loved. How did Jesus love? You ever notice in a relationship, there's an inverse relationship between love and power? Think about your relationship with your boss at work. Think about your relationship with your spouse. In any relationship, it's almost impossible to express love and power at the same time. Whoever's exercising the most power is expressing the least love. Whoever's expressing the most love is exercising the least power. One writer put it this way. They said, in expressing love, a person's got to give up power, and hence love makes a person vulnerable. Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by love. Have a child, and I'm telling you it is coming your way. (laughs) Excuse me, Courtney. Consider a particular married couple, right? He loves her. He'll do anything to keep her in his life. She, on the other hand, she doesn't love him very much, and she's unconcerned as to whether he stays or leaves. Who in the relationship has the most power? Who can dictate the terms of the relationship? Who calls the shots in the decision-making? Well, the answer is clear. She can because she has all the power. But note that her power is the consequence of her lack of love. And as believers, we shouldn't have any difficulty in understanding this relationship between love and power because God, in order to express his love, chooses to give up his power. This is what we believe the incarnation is all about. 2,000 years ago, Almighty God setting aside power in order to express his love. This is why the Messiah entered history not as a conquering emperor, but as, as a disheveled baby in a manger. The passage of the scripture that states this is, again, that Philippians chapter 2 verse we talked about. We're told that in Christ, God emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. It's interesting that there's a powerful bond, church, between love and serving, the two things I'm asking you to consider making a promise to one another over. There's a fusion there. You see, the God described in this passage is a God, he, he refuses his power as he seeks to save the world. Let me Watch this. You know this temptation story, some of you, right? Jesus, Jesus is, goes out into the desert where Satan meets him. You know what Satan tempts him with? Power. Jesus refuses to establish his kingdom. Instead, he says, my kingdom will come, not in an imposition of my will on the nations, but through sacrificial love. Jesus, while he's hanging on Calvary's tree, his enemies taunt, taunt him, and you know what his enemies shout at him and make fun of him? They say, show us your power, And then we'll believe. Come down off the cross. But that's not the way Jesus uses his power to coerce humanity. He uses love to draw humanity unto himself. I'm going to conclude with this, and I want you to hear this. I've told you this before, but it's so important. If we could could create, in my own mind, I've used a filter. I've kind of put a filter on my mind to try to create something that I can run my thoughts through, try to... Many of you know, if you knew me 20 years ago, I didn't do a good job with this. I just said what came to mind. Bad idea, right? And so I've created a little filter where I try to run things through it, um, and it's called the love filter, and it comes from Paul's teaching on love. You ever been to a wedding, okay? If you've been to a wedding, you've heard this, but it wasn't written to a marrying couple. It was written to a fighting church. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you telling me this is some kind of church? Church, madam, if you saw a church in town where in there people were speaking with the tongues of men and angels, that in there there was a gift of prophecy, you could go and hear prophetic ramblings over you. If you could find a church that could explain to you all of the mysteries, every question that you want answered about God, that church could explain it to you. If you could find a church in our town that, that would move you to have faith so strong that it could move mountains, if you found a church in our community where everybody was given all of their stuff, just like I said, promise one, everybody's throwing their stuff in the ring, they're all going on missions trips, they're all serving the poor, if you could find that church, you shouldn't go unless there's love there. Because it profits nothing. Paul says you're wasting your time. In fact, he goes on to explain to them what love looks like. He says, you see church in your relationships with one another and the way we treat one another in here so that when they look in, it looks different. Here's what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. I try to run what I'm saying. I try to do this especially with my wife and my kids now because I love them the most. Before I say anything, which means I, I am quiet often. <laughs> I, I have a little thing where I go, is what I'm about to say patient? Is what I'm about to say kind? And then I could go through a lot of the things that, that love isn't, but I just want to jump down to the bottom. See, Paul says that love bears all things. Love puts up with a ton of crud. Love believes all things. Do you know what churches bites churches more than anything else? There's something about church people. I don't know what it is. It's in the water that we give you here because it happens to me when I first come to church. Something happens about becoming a church person where you become cynical. We start to always assume the worst of people. We always impute bad motive or poor heart. But the scripture says, no, no, if you're going to love one another, you need to actually believe that that person is acting because they love God and they're good. Scripture goes on, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Church, let's love one another. And lastly, there's this, it's the number one, it's the number one thing. If you want to make a commitment to each other here, Paul and Jesus talk more about it than any other alone. Why? Because there is only one thing that can sidetrack, waylay, derail, and make impotent the church of Jesus Christ as the hope of the world. There is only one thing, and it is the ultimate scheme of the enemy because it doesn't come from out there to in here. It comes from in here. You see it happening in church after church in the Bible. Almost every letter, epistle is written about it, and it's happening in almost every church in America. The number one thing we need to commit to one another, again, like love, if we get these right, we got 80% of them, the number one thing we need to do is be united one with another. There is no bigger threat to the church. It's the only threat that comes from within. 
It's at the heart of almost every epistle written by Paul. It's the constant threat to God's people, his family, our family. It's the constant threat to your children in this church. It's the number one threat to the stability of our family. Paul keeps telling the churches it over and over. To the church of Corinth, he says, I appeal to you, I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord, that all of you would agree with one another. And what you say, that there would be no divisions among you, that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. To the church in Rome, oh, the church in Rome, they must have it together. To the church in Rome, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Little idea, here's what, where, you, where this concept comes from, right? When you start to think too much of yourself, right? You start to think you know more, are better, all the rest than others. You see the same spirit creep up at the church of Galatia. Let us, be, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Jesus' brother James, you think he dealt with envy and boasting? How would you like to be married to a guy that walks around going, I'm the savior of the world? Or excuse me, be the brother of some guy walking around saying, see, my wife is married to a guy that goes around saying, I'm the savior of the world. <laughs> James walked around with a brother that said, I'm the savior of the world. And James even came to understand, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, all of you that think you're better than all of them, or you will be judged. I want to give you a visual reminder of what we are talking about. Under all of your seats down here on the last row, it's cool because there's somebody in just about every seat. Reach down and you will find a container of salt under your seat. We're going to close with this metaphor, this biblical metaphor. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a little salt. It's margarita time here, Amanda. No, I wait. <laughs> I want you to take a little salt and put it in your hand and then pass it down to your neighbor. And so these are going to have to go all the way through Literally, just a tiny bit of salt. This should take like a second and a half. And if church is going on too long today, it's because you're slow passing the salt. Um, so you guys in the back, you should each have them too, all the way in the back. Everybody put a little bit of salt in your hand. Because I'm going to explain to you my favorite one, another verse, as it has to do with the number one threat to the church. Salt, which you are holding in your hand. For most of antiquity... If you study the scripture, you know the Bible talks about salt a lot. Salt, for most of antiquity, was the most valued thing on earth. Salt was once equivalent to gold in the price on the streets. Predominantly because it was a preservative. What you would do is you would take your fish, you would take your vegetables, you would take your meat, and you would pack it in salt. The salt would draw the moisture out of the tissues. Without the water there, the microbes that cause decay uh, would die. And so these dried meats, dried vegetables, they would last for months or years. And so in the ancient world, you could preserve fish and vegetables and meats. This was a huge step forward for mankind. There was nothing more valuable than what you're holding in your hand right now. It was mankind's refrigerator. It was how, it was how they, did, they, didn't, they could sleep at night because the salt was preserving last year's crop. It was so big, let me show you this. I, you have to understand how big this is, okay? The Latin word for salt was sol. It's in all of our words today. You know what I had for lunch yesterday? Salami. You know what I, I, I anybody like to go to the boardwalk at Seaside Heights? If you go to the Midway, you can get yourself something with peppers. 
Sausage. You could have it in sauce. It's in salsa. I'll give you another one. It was so preeminent in the early world, this salt concept, that word Saul. Do you know what they would pay the Roman guards in in Jesus' day? You know what they would pay them in? Salt. You want to know something crazy? You know what you get every two weeks? What do you get? A salary. That's how important salt was. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, church, listen to this. Because salt both saved food and people, thus comes our word, salvation. Salt. And Jesus walks around and he says to this little band of followers, you realize you're the salt of the earth. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus and Ezekiel, salt was ordained as part of the sacrifices. In Ezra, it was part of the temple offering. It was used as a symbol, as a sacred sign in Numbers and Second Chronicles. Salt was an illustration of a covenant of friendship. In cultures throughout the region that Jesus lived in, the eating church, listen to me together, the eating of salt together was a sign of friendship. Salt land is a metaphorical name for a desolate no man's land. The land of defeated cities in the Bible was salted to concentrate them for a God, for a, to God. And into this world where salt was just so valued, Jesus says this about one and others. In Mark 9.50, he says, you know, salt is good, you people who are supposed to be the salt of the earth. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? In other words, if you, church, if you start losing your, your power, your ability to retard things, what's going to fix you? What will make you salty again? How can a preservative agent be changed back? He continues in 950. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The beautiful peace and unity of the church of Jesus Christ as we serve one another, as we love one another, as we live in peace with one another, we again become what we have been called to be, preservatives to a world all around us that is in desperate decay. So as the band comes up, here's what I want you to do. And I learned a valuable lesson in the first service. In the ancient world, what they would do is they would get together and, and when they were going to make a promise one to another, the way that they would make the promise that would just get it sealed so that everybody know this is, we're really serious about this. We're so serious, we're going to seal it with salt. And they would take the salt and they would, now, now don't do anything yet. I'm trying to help you because I learned this first service. They would get together, and together they would eat salt together to seal their promises one to another. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If any of this resonates in your heart, if there's at any level where you say, you know what, I need to be serious about my commitment one to another in this place, together, those of you that want to do that, we are going to seal that relationship by taking the salt together. But here's what I want you to do. I have no water for you. <laughs> in the first service, it became a giant cough fest. <laughs> It lost some of, some of its effectiveness. <laughs> so just take a tiny taste of the salt. 
And let's seal our desire to serve one another, to love one another, and to unite with one another. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And all the church said, Amen. eat your salt and let's close in worship.